Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the podcast of Legendary Excellence for podcast episode number part nine, chapter two. Christian sounding more and more unstable, as am I, apparently. And a good old inheritance-fueled siblings fight. Gotta love it. Every, every book, every book we read has an inheritance-siblings fight. Or at least an inheritance-family fight. Techrific came in with the correct link to the podcast, because apparently I got it wrong. Thank you, Techrific, for that. Zock says, I get Thomas. It's like being in government. You have to make some unpopular decisions that are awful from an idealist perspective, but necessary in the ugly reality. Although I don't fully understand why Christian marrying Aileen and their children taking Christian's estate when he dies is so bad. When you think of how Thomas treats Hanno... Christian remarks about his character sound not so far off. And although Thomas knows generally what is needed for the firm, he does not know the right individual decisions to make, like how he wants to shape Hanno to be the next firm leader, but everything he has tried to do to advance that end so far backfired. This could just as well be said of Hanno. As far back as I can remember, I have felt such an icy contempt coming from you that I've always been frozen to the bone. In your presence, yes, maybe strange way to put it, but if that's what I really felt, you rebuff me just by looking at me. Also, suddenly remember, do you remember at the end of the 100th anniversary chapter, 8.5, Thomas received some news and said, it's better this way, it's never been explained what that was. Oh yeah, what was that? Techrific says, I took it to mean that the crop he bought got pummeled by hail. Yeah, that was my guess as well. He knew he'd done something unethical and uncharacteristically became his religious father for one second, a sweet irony. I think he did that out of necessity. <coughs> you know? If they had have said, hey, the hail just missed your crop, he would have said, oh, thank God. But because he hit it, it hit it, his crop, then he's, uh, you know, falling back on, well, that's for the best. Chapter 3. Little Johan was to go to take his farewell of his grandmother's mortal remains. His father so arranged it, and though Hanno was afraid, he made not a syllable objection. At table the day after the Frau Consul's dying struggle, the senator and his sons present, and apparently was designed, had com- commented harshly upon the conduct of Uncle Christian, who had slipped away and gone to bed when the patient's suffering was at its height. That was his nerves, Thomas, Gerda had answered. But with a glance at Hanno, which had not escaped the child, the senator had severely retorted that an excuse was not in place. The agony of their departed mother had been so sore that one had felt ashamed even to be sitting there free from pain, not to mention entertaining the cowardly thought of trying to escape of any suffering of my of mind called up by the sight. From which Hanno had gathered that it would not be safe to object to the visit to the open coffin. The room looked as strange to him as it had at Christmas, when on the day before the funeral between his father and his mother he entered it from the hall. There was a half-circle of potted plants, arranged alternately with high silver candelabra, and against the dark green leaves gleamed from a black pedestal the marble copy of the Thor's Waldsden Christ, which belonged in the corridor outside. Black crepe hangings fluttered everywhere in the draught, hiding the sky-blue tapestries and the smiling immortals who had looked down from these walls upon so many festive dinner tables. Little Johan stood beside the bier among his black-clad relatives. He had a broad mourning band on his own sailor suit, and his senses felt misty when, with the scent 
from countless bouquets and wreaths and with another odour that came wafting now and then on the current of air and smelled strange yet somehow familiar. He stood beside the bier and looked at the motionless white figure stretched out there severe and solemn amid white satin. This was not Grandmama, this... There was her Sunday cap with the white silk ribbons and her red-brown hair beneath it, but the pinched nose was not hers, nor the drawn lips, nor the sharp chin, nor the yellow translucent hands, whose coldness and stiffness one could see. This was a wax doll to dress it up and lay it out like that seemed rather horrible. He looked across to the landscape room as though he, as though the real Grandmama might appear there the next minute, but she did not come, she was dead. Death had turned her forever into this wax figure and kept its lids and lips so forbiddingly closed he stood resting on his left leg the right knee bent balancing lightly on the toe and clutched his sailor knot with one hand the other hanging down he held his head on one side and the curly light brown locks swaying over the temples and locked looked with his gold brown blue encircled eyes in brooding repugnance upon the face of the dead his breath came long and shuddering for he kept expecting the strange, puzzling odour which all the scent of the flowers sometimes failed to disguise. When the odour came, he perceived it. He drew his brows still more together, his lip trembled, and the long sigh which he gave was so like a tearless sob that Frau Permanida bent over and kissed him and took him away. And after the senator and his wife and Frau Permanida and Erica had received for long hours the condolences of the entire town, Elizabeth Buddenbrook born Kroger was consigned to earth. The out-of-town families from Hamburg and Frankfurt came to the funeral and for the last time received hospitality in Meng Street and the hosts of the sympathizers filled the hall and the landscape room, the corridor and the pillared hall and passed a prisheme of St. Mary's erect among burning tapers at the head of the coffin, turning his face up to the heaven, his hands folded beneath his chin, preached the funeral sermon. He praised in resounding tones the qualities of the departed he praised her refinement and humility her piety and cheer her mildness and her charity he spoke of jerusalem evenings and of the sunday school he gilded with matchless oratory the whole long rich and happy earthly course of her who had left them and when he came to the end since the word end needed some sort of qualifying adjective he spoke of her peaceful end frappermanita was quite aware of the dignity the rep- Presentative bearing which she owed to herself and the community in this hour. She, her daughter Erica, and her granddaughter Elizabeth occupied the most conspicuous places of the honour, close to the pastor at the head of the coffin, while Thomas, Gerda, Clotilda, and little Johann, as likewise old Consul Kroger, who had a chair to sit in, were content, as were the relatives of the second class, to occupy less prominent places. Frau Permanida stood there, very erect, her shoulders elevated, her black-bordered handkerchief between her folded hands and her pride in the chief role which it fell to her lot to perform was so great as sometimes entirely to obscure her grief. Conscious of being the focus of all eyes, she kept her own discreetly cast down, yet now and again she could not resist letting them stray over the assembly in which she noted the presence of Jolschen Mollendorf, born Hagenstrom and her husband. Yes, they had all had to come, Bollendorf's Kistenmarkers, Longholes, Overdiaks, before, 
Tony Buttonbrook left her parental roof forever. They had all gathered here to offer her, despite Grunlich, despite Permanida, despite Hugo Winschenk, their sympathy and condolences. Pastor Pringsheim's sermon went on, turning the knife in the wound that death had made. He caused each person present to remember his own dead. He knew now, he knew how to make tears flow where none would have flowed of themselves. And for this, <clears throat> the weeping ones were grateful to him. When he mentioned the Jerusalem evenings, all the old friends of the dead began to sob, excepting Madame Cathelson, who did not hear a word he said, but stared straight before her with the remote air of the death. And the Gerhard sisters, the descendants of Paul, who stood hand in hand in a corner, their eyes glowing, they were glad for the death of their friend, and could have envied her, but that envy and unkindness were foreign to their natures. Poor Mademoiselle Richbrot blew her nose all the time with a short, empathetic, emphatic sound. The Miss, Mrs. Buttonbrook did not weep. It was not their habit. Their bearing, less angular than usual, expressed a mild satisfaction with the impartial justice of death. Pastor Pringsheim's last amen resounded, and the forebearers in the bleak, in the black three-cornered hats, their black cloaks billowing out behind them with the swiftness of their advance, came softly in and put their hands upon the coffin. They were four lackeys known to everybody who were engaged to hand the heavy dish he sat every large dinner in the best circles, and who drank Mollendorf's claret out of the carafes between the courses, but also they were indispensable at every funeral of the first or second class, being of large experience of this kind of work. They knew that the harshness of this moment, when the coffin was laid hold upon by strange hands and borne away from the survivors, must be ameliorated by tact and swiftness. Their movements were quick, agile, and noiseless. Hardly had any one time to be sensible of the pain of the situation before they had lifted the burden from the bier to their shoulders, and the flower-covered casket swayed away smoothly and with decorum through the pillared hall. The ladies pressed tenderly about Frau Pomanito and her daughter to offer their sympathy. They took her hand and murmured with drooping eyes precisely no more and no less than what on such occasions must be murmured, while the gentlemen made ready to go down to the carriages. Then came in a long black procession the slow drive through the grey misty streets out through the Burg Thor, along the leafless avenue in a cold driving rain to the cemetery where the funeral march sounded behind half-bare shrubbery on the edge of the little grove, and the great sandstone cross marked the Buttonbrook family lot. The stone lid of the grave, carven with the family arms, lay close to the black hole framed in dripping greens. A place had been prepared down below for the newcomer. In the last few days, the senator had supervised the work of pushing aside the remains of a few early Buttonbrooks. The music sounded, the coffin swayed on the ropes above the open depth of masonry. With a gentle commotion, it glided down past a Pringsheim who had put on pulse warmers began to speak afresh his voice ringing fervid and emotional above the open grave he bent over the grave and spoke to the dead calling her by her full name and blessed her with the sign of the cross his voice ceased all the gentlemen held their top hats in front of their faces in the black gloved hands and the sun came out a little it had stopped raining and into the sound of the singing all drops that fell from the trees and bushes they broke now and then the short, fine, questioning twitter of a bird. All the gentlemen turned a moment to press the hands of the sons and brother of the dead once more. Thomas Buttonbrook, as the others filed by, stood between his brother Christian and his uncle Justus. His thick, dark woolen overcoat was dewed with fine silver drops. He had begun of late to grow a little stout. The single 
sign of age in his carefully preserved exterior, and his cheeks behind the pointed protruding ends of his moustache looked rounder than they used, but it was a pale and sallow roundness without blood or life. He held each man's hand a moment in his own, and his slightly reddened eyes looked them all with weary politeness in the face. And that's that chapter for you. Funeral. What more can you say about it? Funeral. Alright, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.